episode 416 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our clients, our firms, our institutions, our families, pets, or even really ours three weeks from today. Joining me for the News Roundup, Jane Bambauer, Professor of Law at the University of Arizona, Dave Itell, who's a cybersecurity specialist and a policy partner at Cordyceps Systems. And Dave, I think we might have covered this before, but cordyceps are the is that fungus that grows out of the foreheads of infected ants and causes them to climb up the grass so that they can be eaten by a variety of grass eaters and be spread by their feces. Is that the institution you've joined? <laughs> It is indeed, and I see you've been studying your biology, but if you yes. think about... Uh, how, who can forget that? The, uh, yes. <laughs> this is the best name since Ken did. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we're going to have a special guest appearance by Dmitry Alperovic, who wanted to be on but had a conflict and nonetheless wanted to be heard on at least one topic. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. So let's start with Dmitry talking about the effort by the United States to further restrict Chinese access to the most sophisticated chip-making technology. Dimitri, thank you for kind of jumping in, even though you aren't really available when we were recording the main episode. I know this is a matter of some passion for you. We wanted to cover the ASML story in which the U.S. government is really leaning hard on a Dutch company not to sell its chip-making equipment to China and having some luck. But do we really know what we're doing when we come up with export controls? Are we just kind of swinging pendulum-like from giving DOD whatever they want because we're mad at whatever country is in their sights or giving industry whatever they want and letting them export whatever they want because otherwise they say we'll end up losing the whole market to competitors we don't like. And so I guess my question for you is taking the ASML case as an example, is it really possible to come up with thoughtful, well-executed and effective export controls? Well, I think it is. And I think the proof is in the pudding because all you have to do is look at Huawei. And of course, the Trump administration a couple of years ago came up with a foreign product direct rule based export control where they basically banned everyone from selling chips to Huawei for use in their mobile communication equipment. And Huawei's share of the market just dropped precipitously. And everyone stopped selling to Huawei, even companies like TSMC that some people argued would never stop doing business with Huawei because it was 15% of their business. That 15% went to zero overnight because people were afraid of the consequences of being blocked from US technologies and US markets as a result of these export controls. So A, they're very effective in circumstances where they're targeted, where there's an overarching objective to do something, and particularly the Trump administration was concerned with crippling Huawei on national security grounds and probably other grounds as well. And the second piece of this is, are you preventing them from accessing technology that they absolutely have to have and they have no workarounds? And in the case of semiconductors, it is, of course, that type of technology that Huawei has no ability to get if you block them from receiving chips uh, from uh, any source, really, because all of it comes back to some sort of USIP. Now, when it comes to the SML story, I do have some problems with what is being reported because the Trump administration did lean 
very hard on the Dutch government to prevent ASML from selling equipment to China below the 14 nanometers, some of the most advanced equipment that you really need to get from ASML to manufacture those chips. But what the story is about now is that the Biden administration now is going back to the Dutch government to pressure the SML allegedly to prevent them from selling other equipment, including for the more legacy nodes that the Chinese already have some sort of manufacturing capacity today. Now, I do agree with the Biden administration's objective here, which is to prevent China from getting access to technology that will help them to manufacture more chips. So even though they may have some fabs already that are manufacturing at those legacy nodes, quantity matters. As the saying goes in DC, quantity has a quality of its own. And the reality I is that- I thought that was even, Lenin, but- uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the reality is that even if the Chinese have a few fabs at certain nodes, like 28 nanometer, 40 nanometer, or what have you, they can't build any more without access to equipment from three countries. The Netherlands, of course, is one with ASML. Japan is another with a couple of companies that manufacture that equipment, and the United States. And my big problem with this story is that if it is true that the Biden administration is going to the Dutch government and asking ASML to not sell their equipment to China, why are we not asking our own companies to do the same? Because at those particularly legacy nodes, ASML has competitors. It has competitors like Applied Materials and LAM in the United States. It has competitors in Japan. So it really is unfair and ineffective if you just have the Dutch government take all the pain from blocking exports to China, and then American companies are filling in the void, so China still continues to build at those legacy notes. So if you want to cut them off, and I do think that there's a lot of good reasoning for why you want to cut them off, even at those legacy notes, because by the way, if you're concerned about weapon systems that the Chinese are building, new ships, new missiles, new tanks, all of those are not advanced notes. They're all legacy notes. And in fact, any device that you can think of, even the latest generation of iPhones, the vast majority of the chips in those devices, literally dozens upon dozens, are from legacy nodes. Everything from power converters, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, etc. they're not advanced chips, and you don't have an iPhone without those legacy chips. So I do think it's really, really important to look at this holistically, and if the strategy is let's cut off China from manufacturing those chips in large quantities, then you have to look at preventing exports from the United States, preventing exports from the Netherlands and the Japanese as well. You have to have a coordinated policy with those three countries, and you can't just lean on other countries like the Dutch and ask them to take all the pain. I think it's really, really unfair and won't work. Not, yeah, not if they think that we're taking advantage of their pain to make more sales of for course. our companies. That'll kill what is a kind of remarkably cooperative arrangement with Holland and with Japan right now. Exactly. All right, Dimitri, thank you so much for jumping in. I appreciate it. And we'll get you back soon. So thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. All right. Okay. So here's an inside the administration story, but one that I thought was fascinating and not the full story. This is a New York Times story saying that a big U.S. defense and law enforcement contractor, L3 Harris, actually was in the process of negotiating to buy NSO. We all knew that, but that they had done it with a wink and a nod and maybe something more than that from the U.S. intelligence community. And then some White House spokesman just bigfooted them by saying, we're outraged at the very thought and killed the deal more or less. There's some doubt about whether it's completely dead. Dave? You're totally right. This is I, I, no, I think there's no doubt that it's dead. 
I think it's it's as dead as dead can be. The question is, what happens next? Do they get purchased by someone else? Do they completely fold? One thing I like to remind people when they're looking at the NSO Group stories is the true scale of the company. This is a you know quarter billion dollar a year company, which is not a small thing. And so you know when something that big fails, they often fail in large and painful ways. Yeah. And there's like some weird pieces of this reporting in the New York Times where they say, such a plan would have been highly unusual had it been finalized since 5 Eye countries usually only purchase intelligence products that have been developed and manufactured within those countries. Really? That's what I, I was like, yeah, really? was like, <laughs> I was kind of like, okay, I don't know. I don't know where this is coming from, right? So sometimes New York Times reporting, you have to really read carefully to, you know, double check it, shall we say. This feels like it was sourced by the guys at the White House who are trying to, uh, trying to deal with the fact that, uh-oh, maybe we moved too soon, maybe we didn't get uh, coordination, and maybe we need to punish the IC guys who didn't tell us in time to avoid embarrassment. But is, there's other weird things in here, too, where they say that there's like serious counterintelligence concerns for the purchase. And you have to ask yourself, what is the counterintelligence concern that you have now when you've purchased a company that you didn't have like yeah. when it was just out there operating? Well, like, right? Israel, like, so, should have, Israel should have a few counterintelligence concerns. Right. And the deal would have had to have been approved by Israel as well. Yeah. Like this is sort of like part of your partnership as two countries and two capabilities and two industries. You have to ask these top White House officials what their better plan is for NSO. I'm willing to bet this leaked. It was a surprise. They got called and asked for a comment, and somebody at the White House said, I'm in charge of stuff like this, and they popped off without knowing a lot of the details and not having been briefed. And now, having made the policy by mistake, they're going to stick with it. Yeah, it kind of feels like the people at L3 Harris were trying to do the right thing. And they kind of got knifed in the back by their own team. Yeah. So, you know, I feel bad for them, but that is the risk of that job, right? Like, that's how this works. Yeah. And I'm sure they know that. Having been in this position in government where you get asked about stuff that you really should probably go back and spend a couple of hours with your staff before you answer, but you don't have time. It's embarrassing not to have an answer. And you say things and it turns out they're not exactly true. And you just make it so because you're in a position to make it so. And I think more policy is made that way than anybody in government would like to admit. So that's what my guess about what's going on here, that, that if they had been brief, they might have said, well, uh, Keep talking, find out what we can get out of this, because there would have been some payoffs for U.S. intelligence if this had gone forward, although whether it could really have been done, I'm not. I don't think it would have ended up happening, but it is interesting it dissolved in this particular way. All right, so let's talk about Apple's announcement, which is really basically aimed at NSO. They have introduced lockdown mode. How valuable is lockdown mode from your point of view, Dave? Well... Let me put it this way. If I had an Apple phone, I would definitely run it. And I don't want to get into the technical details of what lockdown yep. mode prevents. It's really aimed at people. I think the big one is that you can't have lockdown mode and mobile device management, which is what a lot of corporations use, of course. And the other issue you would see probably running lockdown mode is you're not going to be getting a bunch of random attachments on your phone. Like people aren't going to be sending you PDFs and random things that you'll get, like if you had a normal phone. But I think it would have been very cool if instead they had just announced corporate mode, which is 
the current mode that you run in and just made <laughs> lockdown mode the default. Like, that's the baller move. You're this right. is definitely what we'll call a big step forward. Ivan Kerstick's doing a great job over as Apple's head of platform security. But the reality is, is that this is something they should have made default. It'd be very interesting to see what Google does in response to this. I hope they have a response to this because that would be great. But, you know, this is the kind of thing that's going to make teams like NSO Group's job harder. In theory, in practice, implementation is the hard part. Yeah. So I kind of agree with you. It really does cut down on usability, even for an individual user. And I suspect what Apple is doing is they're saying, we'll put it out there. We'll say it's only for the creme de la creme. And let's see if a lot of people adopt it. If a lot of people adopt it, maybe we can move some of those features over or maybe we can make it standard and then have a, oh, I surrender to the hackers mode for people who want the really ease of use that you get today. I mean, if you think about it, the past few years have not been good for Apple's security reputation. And NSO Group getting as big as they've gotten, based on what you have to assume are some pretty important wins in the world of hacking people's iPhones, certainly has been part of that. So this is like a very sane, rational approach, as you say. It's sort of what you would expect a professional team to be doing. All right. So... Jane, the UK, I'm sure 90% of commentators would say, is doing its best to move people toward less secure implementations on their phones by putting out a revised set of legislation that really would make it pretty hard to run end-to-end -end encryption the way most people think it should be run. Yeah, I mean, it's not quite clear even how the bill would be interpreted, but this is an amendment to the online safety bill that would require tech firms to make their, quote, best endeavors, so that's the legal team of art we're working with, best endeavors, to deploy new technology that identifies and removes child sexual abuse images, so, you know, CSAM. TechCrunch also reported that maybe there's a possibility of also requiring scanning for terrorism content. Yes, yeah, the, le the legislation does both. Does both, yeah, and that, that's even harder. I mean, at least with CSAM, there's an established you know, library of known images that we can all, you know, mostly agree on as the content that we're trying to remove. Terrorism content seems much more amorphous. So that seems very, you know, I think even knowing what the bill's trying to do, it gets very complicated with terrorism. But in any case, clearly what they're thinking about are things like the program that Apple announced but never implemented and has since walked back where they were going to be running CSAM detection automatically on people's devices. So, you know, client-side automated scanning before any images are uploaded to their cloud server. And so this bill might make that kind of system or some other system that either doesn't exist or does and we haven't talked about much. Or uh, you could you could just you could just break end-to-end -end encryption and do the scanning as a During man in the middle of attack. Yeah. Yeah. So if Best Endeavor includes that possibility, then yes, maybe these companies would even have to do that. Although one thing I wondered is why they're looking at the communication service providers. I mean, if they're going to go this far, why not go to the operating system level, right? So it seems yeah. to me that the point at which a person can't avoid having an unencrypted file is when they're actually consuming it, which is on yeah. their device. <laughs> so I don't know. If this is if this kind of third way of doing things where you allow, in theory, you know, that the theory here is that encryption is still in place and valuable and does the job, except for certain 
types of content that the government has pre-designated as so loathsome that we have to break encryption just for it, you know, under the management of the encryption service provider. If that is a third way, which I actually think we should take a little bit seriously, and I can come back to that if you want. But if that's the idea, then we might as well think bigger about other service providers or other, you know, operating system level sort of uh, plans. Yeah, and so, the, yeah, so I, I don't. I have the, the amendment here, and it says that it applies to a regulated user-to-user -user service. So that might be more than just the telcos and the ISP. But it wouldn't be. I it mean, but, but that you, seems to eliminate Apple, Apple, Android. I mean, well, Apple you're only, as you're, a you're regulated provider, if but... they say you're. They, they may be, it may be that you're <laughs> regulated if they say you're regulated. So, <laughs> well, that's another problem. So, so yeah. So the other problem is that much like EU law, UK has decided to, you know, adopt much of what is dysfunctional in the EU, despite the fact that it left the EU. So it has these absurd fines. You know, a ten percent of global turnover sort of fine that could be imposed by their new internet watchdog agency, and so that means that the sort of Damocles is hanging over all of these tech firms. And there's a lot of discretion. And that too really bothers me about the bill, even though, contrary to most of your audience, I suspect, I actually think we should consider the possibility of embracing having, you know, Western governments define some sorts of content that are not only illegal, but so harmful, that we're comfortable requiring the scanning and detection of that sorts of stuff, while otherwise they're letting end-to-end -end encryption frustrate other governments that would otherwise use that kind of technique to find dissidents and whatnot. So I, 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 yeah, I, I'm not quite there, partly because scanning for nasty content is a pretty weak response to terrorism, right? Because all you're scanning for is known beheading videos and other ISIS recruiting stuff, which is not bad, but you know, the beheading has already occurred. This is just a speech we don't like. And then with yeah. um, child sexual abuse material, yeah, it's evidence of a crime and it has continuing terrible consequences for the kids who are in those videos, even after they've grown up. So you could say, yes, we want to stop that, but neither of them really stops the crime itself. Uh, it just prevents certain kinds of evidence of certain kinds of crimes from being distributed. And I think if you're going to start breaking encryption, you ought to do it when you've got a wiretap order on a guy you think is engaged in violating the law and not just say, well, we'll make sure he can't get old child sex abuse material. He'll only get new stuff. Well, so there I disagree with you. Okay, so where I agree with you is that it may be that these programs that could be implemented today are actually not that efficacious, that we're not actually going to terrorism recruiting by finding these images nor will we stop the production of new, like what we really care about the most, right, is the production of new child sexual abuse images. And those are by definition not in this library, right? However, in theory, in the future, that could change. Like imagine that we do have a good AI program that actually identifies the abuse of young children from images that we've never seen before or something like that. If that were capable of being produced, I think there's great value in doing more than just using the warrant process where we find known individuals that we already have a suspicion of either producing or trafficking the images. And in any case, I can't defend the terrorism 
plan because I agree with you completely that they're I'm not even going to pretend that in the future AI can find effective terrorism recruitment content, you know, but but the child pornography production, I think there's at least a possibility that in the future, something like this could really move the needle. So maybe the terrorism thing is just in there so that when they stand up to debate with Silicon Valley, they can say, not only are they in favor of child sexual abuse, they're in favor of terrorism. (laughs) All right. Uh, This next story I just love because it's lawyers getting hacked and then the results of the hacking used to beat those same lawyers in court. Dave, this was a great story. This is my favorite story of the week. So Raphael Satter and Chris Bing, I think Chris Bing went to go get a degree actually at Dimitri's school recently. I think he announced that this week. Yes, I think Um, I did see that. So it's all connected. It's all connected. But so in Reuters, they announced or produced this huge report on the economy almost of legal teams through private investigators and contractors getting compromising information on the targets of their lawsuits by using mostly Indian hacking companies. And this sort of dates back a decade. And they've got a significant amount of data to sort of corroborate this. And a number of the big firms that also do this kind of tracking, Google and Microsoft and so forth, were sort of saying, yes, this is actually exactly what we see. And they've hit like a ton of targets, right? Something like 13,000 different people, 75, you know, US EU companies, 108 different law firms. A lot of the material they were stealing was the sort of, you know, attorney confidential material. Yeah. And we've always said, like, look, I will completely be honest with your audience. Law firms don't have the best information security. Nope. Everyone. I think the whole audience is aware that this is a problem. Just just the price, 20000 to compromise the biggest firms in the world tells you they're not very secure. (laughs) Exactly. And it's not just this sort of one Indian firm. Obviously, there's a suite of these firms doing this kind of contracting, you know, email recovery, so to speak. And you can find them yourself by just posting anything on Twitter that says, I've lost my Instagram account. How do I get it back? And people will be in your follows and will be like, hey... If you need that help, that's $400. We'll make sure it happens. So this story really can't do it justice. It really does need to be It is a great story. I will say what was, you know, these are brand name law firms that apparently were compromised. They cite Baker and McKenzie and Lalive, the big arbitration firm in Switzerland, as victims. I thought the most interesting one was a, a strong suggestion, which is now in litigation, that a Deckert partner was part of a compromise and Deckard and the partner are being sued in the UK over this very troubling because you would ordinarily expect the lawyers to, even if they kind of knew something was going on, hire a private investigator and say, you know, will no one rid me of this meddlesome priest? And before you know it, somebody has released these materials and the classic way to do it without getting your hands dirty or without getting your partner's hands dirty is to pretend to be WikiLeaks put up some distributed denial of services type website saying, look at all these files that we hacked from this evil company. And then the litigators can go through and do a Google search and say, hey, look what we just found. And this is, in fact, what's happened. This is, in fact, what's happened. And it's made real impacts on, on really big lawsuits. I think that the corruption of the system in general is the real power of this story. I think that's right. And it does suggest that the FBI uh, should be, whenever there's evidence that these are 
hacked files, and they almost always will be, you've got probable cause to believe there was a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, the FBI should be going to those sites using legal process to justify a break-in to see who's actually posting stuff there and who's editing the files as part of a criminal investigation. It should be just standard these days to do that. Why are they going to do that when the site is hosted out of India is, is a big question right now. Well, right, so these y- firms aren't operating here. I mean, yeah. I know it's possible, but yeah. I'm just saying this is the complication yes. is really where it's coming down to. Yeah. Anyway, so it is definitely a story worth reading, if for nothing else to say there, but for the grace of God, go in my firm. <laughs> All right. Okay. The, having brought God into this, we're going to have to talk about abortion too. I, uh, Jane, I have been, I think, contemptuous of the nomination by the privacy groups to say, oh, if you hate the Dobbs decision, you need to start worrying about location privacy. It never made any sense to me, but the press will not let go of that uh, that theme. You may even agree with it. There's a couple of stories here, the license plate reader story and the importance of regulating data brokers. Uh, mm-hmm. But I just don't think that has anything to do with any realistic post-Dobbs restrictions on abortion. Yeah, I mean, I agree here that that whatever is novel in these stories is kind of dumb or irrelevant to the real issues that are, you know, that are genuine about privacy, you know, where privacy law should go. And in fact, I I mean, yeah, so Stuart, you referenced a couple stories that came out, but also even Congress has taken the bait, right? So they're now formally oh, they're sending letters to everybody. Why are yeah, you not uh, protecting people? Yeah. Period tracking apps. I have, I, have, <laughs> I have had to respond to so many questions from friends about whether they should delete, you know, period tracking apps. It's just kind of silly. So, okay. So the stuff that's real is that location tracking data does have among, you know, it has location, which means it has the locations of known clinic, clinical centers and Planned Parenthood offices and whatnot. And even from the kind of hyperbolic reporting, it wasn't clear whether as just a regular private citizen, you could actually get access to individual level or and, and certainly, you know, identified data of where people have been, even if you're willing to pay, because the example of, I think it was the protocol paying for some data, it only had census block data. So, you know, which census block people came from when they, but okay, but it is clear that this data is collected by some apps, firms, and whatnot, and that in theory, therefore, law enforcement could access this type of data, as well as license plate data, as well as, you know, reverse keyword searching Google data, in order to find people who have sought out abortions. However, (laughs) what's true of this particular crime that many, many people, including myself, do not think should be a crime, and actually is not yet a crime in at least the vast majority of states. So first of all, there's an open question whether any state is actually going to be trying to enforce a, a, a criminal statute against women who seek abortion. But assuming that they do, this is the type of data that, yes, could be used for that investigation, but it is also has been and could be used to solve crimes that we all want solved. Like one example of the reverse keyword search actually being used to solve a crime involved in arson where a family of five died, right? And so 
This or, is... or, 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 or let's suppose somebody kills an abortion doctor. Uh, uh, yeah, is, exactly. is <laughs> Google's going to say, oh, or, I'm sorry, we deleted that data. <laughs> yeah. Or, yeah, I mean, so it does seem like these stories are really exploiting a political moment. And so you could point to January 6th to push the opposite, you know, in yeah. the opposite direction, that the same location data could help us even better than facial recognition data probably could help us identify if we really want to know every single person who was in that building. And so... You know, the question is whether we want investigations. Uh, well, actually, the bigger question is just what we're going to do with privacy law, whether we're going to cut off collection in the first place, whether we're going to define okay uses and say that everything else is prohibited, which is what most advocates want, privacy advocates want to do, or whether instead what I think is more sane is to say, well, okay, let's define what types of harmful uses we anticipate possibly being used and then prohibit those and then otherwise allow kind of innovation to test things out. And I think that's just as true in policing. We need innovation in policing. And so, yeah, I find these stories also very frustrating. Yeah. The thing that always struck me as particularly weird was the idea that this was going to be used for a criminal prosecution of women who go to abortion clinics. If you're in a state that has criminalized abortion, there won't be any clinics in your state. And so there won't be any location data about clinics in your state. And the likelihood that a state will be able to criminalize going to another state to get an abortion. Yeah, that's... That's, that, I, there's not even five it's votes on this Supreme Court for that because Justice Kavanaugh wrote separately to say, oh, that would violate the right to travel. So there's only at, at best four votes to uphold a law like that if somebody were to pass it. So it's just nuts to be obsessing about something that hasn't happened and probably never can happen. There might be yeah, other well, reasons, as you say. I think it's quite possible that a state could criminalize advertising inside the state to attract people to come get abortions yeah. across state lines. But that would be an imposition on the business, not on the individuals. Well, I mean, okay, I could spin out, let's go to the period tracking apps. I could spin out a hellscape scenario that might be possible, even though I'm sure it will not actually happen, where you have evidence that someone in your state, in a state where abortion is illegal, missed their period for several you know, had all the signs of pregnancy for several weeks, and then all of a sudden started ovulating again, even though, I mean, more likely than not, it's still a miscarriage, right? right. And especially if abortion is illegal, then it's especially more likely to be a miscarriage. But, you know, maybe including some other information suggests at least probable cause that this person sought an abortion. And so now you use that to go after her. I mean, it's not likely to happen, but I can see why if you're trying to exploit everything in order to push a privacy bill, you might go ahead and let people That's think about is. that scenario. This is the yeah. privacy guys trying to exploit the uh, Dobbs decision and get a free ride to see if they can move their legislative agenda. So, uh, and it's don't working, be though. It yeah, is working. I, I guess, that, well, kind of working, <laughs> right? Okay. So I, here's one, a story that did really need some help from Dave. It is a, a story in which Palo Alto Network says there's a red team and I guess a legitimate red team tool that's being used by a, a Russian, by Cozy Bear, I think. And this is an Indian tool called Brute Ratel. Is that how you pronounce it? I believe it is how you pronounce it. I mean, I hesitate to call it an Indian tool in the sense that it's a former CrowdStrike Mandiant pen tester who okay. built this company. So who knows? And also, I guess no tool is really from anywhere in particular. But the weird thing about this story is, you know, obviously this became like a huge Twitter drama. Palo Alto's like, we we found 
you know, Cozy Bear, who is obviously Russian and therefore very interesting to the, you know, Twitterati. And they were like, we found Cozy Bear using this new, very covert penetration testing tool. And there's a huge group of people in the sort of Twitter world who are like, we should ban all penetration testing tools. And so they're like, yes, look, look at this example of this, you know, badness happening. And this, this, this particularly gets your goat because you made early an early pen testing tool in immunity, right? I mean, I've worked in penetration testing tools my whole life, and I've definitely felt some of this heat. So I was particularly sensitized, shall we say. What it turns out to be, even though the title of the blog post that they have is still Red Teaming Tool B being abused by malicious actors, it appears the real story is that a penetration testing company was using a penetration testing tool to look like APT-29. And don't you do that all the time? If, you, if you've got that, a sophisticated yes. customer, they want to know, can the Russians get in? That is, in fact, your job. Yes. These are the tools being used as desired. The thing I like about the story, I didn't like that the authors of this tool took some heat for what probably is no reason. But what I did like about the story is it shows how complicated attribution is yeah. and the dangers of like trying to connect the dots almost because you want to believe the dots are connected. And so it's, it's a cautionary tale, and I think cautionary tales are pretty important. Yeah, and so it, it showed them actually running it through virus total and not having any of the 55 or 60 yeah. tools alert on it. So it does suggest That's it's pretty good. Pretty normal, though. That's normal for a new tool. Right. Okay. For, or a new generation of a tool. Right. So that's the first thing you test against. Like I test against a bunch of antiviruses and they're not going to detect you. Right. So that's not like I wouldn't say that doesn't make the tool necessarily better than other tools in this space. It does make it new and interesting. But, you know, that's some of the value. Like if your defensive programs can't detect new things that they haven't seen before, are they really working? Right. Let's emulate an APT. So that's that is the job. That is right. the bread and butter of penetration testing. So it's very interesting to see what that looks like from the other side. You know, right. it, it I, looks like I, overreaction. I've had people say, we need to see whether they can find the lateral movement once we're in, and we need a way to get yeah. in that they haven't seen. Exactly correct. So it, it's legitimate, but fun. Okay. And Jane, CISA has announced a post-quantum cryptography initiative that looks to me just like some free advice to companies to start <laughs> thinking about post-quantum crypto. Yeah. Well, one reason I wanted this on your agenda was to see if you think that even this kind of milk toast advice that they give is still more than necessary at this point in the development of quantum technology. So that's the question I'm going to pose to you at the end of the start. But yeah, so this is basically piggybacking on NIST, which has now begun the process. Well, so it has selected four post-quantum algorithms that are classical algorithms, but that should, through various means, avoid the threat of quantum computers breaking public key encryption. And as they develop those, in theory, in a few years, they'll have more specific advice for how those algorithms should be adopted and implemented. Well, first of all, how they'll be standardized and then adopted and implemented then companies and firms and contractors and whatnot. So at this stage, all that firms and agencies are supposed to do is do like an inventory and figure out where yeah. they're making use of public key encryption and which assets are the most important and valuable of those that are currently protected using public key. And that's it so far. So I guess the question for you is given that there's still some not just genuine debate, but I think very justified skepticism that we're going to have 
uh, quantum computer capable of breaking pu public key encryption anytime soon, given where we're at today with error correction and how many more qubits we'd need to add to these quantum computers in order to actually run Shor's algorithm to actually break encryption. Do you think that even this is too early and we should spend zero effort on this? Or do you think this is the right amount of effort? So the problem with this has always been <clears throat> that when they actually discover that quantum cryptography is breaking public key, the time to have moved to a quantum uh, resistance is, is five years ago. <laughs> yeah, uh, okay. So uh, I guess I cannot say that it's a bad idea to know which things which of your data you really need to encrypt and how you're encrypting it. That's the kind of thing that people should want to do. Of course, it's sort of always going to be 26th on a list of 25 things that have to be done. My guess is there's still time. And in any event, uh, NIST has not told us which of the algorithms they think ought to be the standard. So I guess I don't object to the idea that we're looking for crypto to replace AES over the long run that will also be quantum resistant because if it's good crypto, yeah. having it be quantum resistant is just an insurance policy. That's right. But you know, you do raise a factor that I haven't seen raised in the, you know, at least it's not put in the kind of like handout that <laughs> they prepared for contractors, which is that not only should you look at the value of the assets that are currently using public key encryption, but the enduring importance of them. So there's some types of data that are very important at the time. Right. If, um, if you're, you if know, you're planning, if, if you've got quarterly results and you're yeah. passing them around the week before they're announced, yeah. uh, that's yeah, exactly. all highly encrypted, but no one will yeah. care afterwards. Yeah. In five years. Yeah, exactly. So that maybe should be a factor that they talk more about. Yeah. Yep, I agree. All right, let's do some quick hits and clean up. This is an updates we've been talking about. We announced that the US and the EU had reached agreement in principle on a new transatlantic data transfer deal, and we've heard nothing since. Now it turns out that's going to become a much more urgent effort because Ireland has said, we're going to stop Facebook from moving its data to the United States. And we've sent a draft opinion to that effect to the European Data Protection Supervisor, and then it's going to come out and we're going to start enforcing it. If I were Facebook, I'd be sitting my hair on fire and running through the White House saying, you've got to get a deal with the EU, or maybe you've run it through the Commerce Department, but that will put real pressure on a deal that I think was announced more as we're announcing a deal because we have to have a deal and we'll figure out exactly <laughs> what the deal is real soon. <laughs> so let's see if they actually have a deal or if that was just BS in the wake of the Ukrainian invasion. Jane, we can't resist this, although I try very hard. Elon Musk now has announced what everybody, you know, this was the most overdetermined announcement in the last month, that he doesn't really want to buy Twitter. And Twitter, which said, we don't want you to buy us when he started, now says, we're going to make you buy us. And they're going to go to court, I predict. Uh, where does this end up? I mean, I think the most likely is with Elon Musk paying a $1 billion penalty and then not taking over Twitter is, is what I would put my yep. bet on. But yep. I, I bet it'll be a little less than a billion, but close. Okay. But this actually, I have to say, this story pains me because I was like one of the few people that thought, well, okay, if there's this contract in place, he is going to take it over. He might realize at some point that he doesn't want to, but he's not going to renege now. His credibility 
would be completely shot if he reneged on this deal, given the agreement that they'd come to. And so I feel very foolish because everyone else who I was arguing against turned out to be right. That either this was just a big old prank all along, or he, you know, he... It couldn't he, have been he, a prank. He, it was not a prank. What changed is everybody's stock price went to hell. The value of his collateral has collapsed, and the value yeah. of the product that he's buying, so the, the difference in price is enormous. So this is just a deal that was killed by the market more than anything. Well, but then if that was all that was at play, I think he would just renegotiate for a different price, but still take it over. But I don't think he wants to do that. He doesn't have the money right now, or at least it's going to be hard. That's my guess. <laughs> okay. Well, but, you know, I, but I think this, this is really bad for his reputation. He becomes to stock purchases what Google is to new products, right? Why would you buy that? Mm. It's not going to be there in six months. So it's very bad for his commercial reputation. Although probably consistent with his public persona. All right. Yeah. I have this week in Silicon Valley speech suppression story that has for once a happy ending, at least from my point of view. Alex Berenson is a former New York Times reporter who got deep into looking at policy and the vaccine. And last summer, when it was clear that you could get reinfected after you'd gotten either an infection or a, a vaccine, he tweeted, it doesn't stop infection or transmission. Don't think of it as a vaccine, but at best as a therapeutic with bad side effects that you have to take before you get sick. And we want to mandate it? That's insanity. So, and I think all of that is true. I don't know how bad the side effects are, but it doesn't prevent infection or transmission. And you do have to take it before you get sick. And so calling that isn't, insanity strikes me as a fair comment. Isn't that true of all vaccines? Vaccines don't prevent infection. Well, actually, a lot of vaccines do a lot better job than the COVID vaccine has done in preventing people from getting the disease. You know, polio, you, you, yes, there are a few people who get polio, but many, many fewer. It's not in the population and circulating in the same way that COVID is. I, I, I would, I don't know. I would say if we were biologists, we would take serious umbrage with his understanding of vaccines. And that probably does justify the misinformation label. Well, really? But it's, so he's saying, don't think of it as a vaccine, but as a therapeutic. It doesn't stop infection or transmission. That's true. It does reduce the impact. It has side effects. I don't know how bad they are. You have to take it before you get sick. All that's true. Uh, and remember, this was at a time when they were punishing people for refusing to get the vaccine as though they were a, th a threat to the social order. I'm not going to disagree with you on any of that stuff. All I'm saying is I don't think he understands what a vaccine is. That could be. Which is weird for someone covering the actual vaccine market like he's supposed to cover. So – so, well, so yeah, I think that, you know, maybe there's some nuance between the differences between vaccines and therapeutics. And actually, there's quite a bit of overlap in terms of what we hope they do. But by saying it's not a vaccine and it is a therapeutic. Yeah, he's, he's just wrong. Don't think, <laughs> well, but, don't think of it as a vaccine. Even if he's wrong, yeah. don't think of it as a vaccine. He's making a political argument and he's wrong, but maybe in some particulars that don't matter as much for the argument that he's yeah, making and I, so it seemed like an overreaction to me and too. twitter twitter has a five strikes policy it says if you make a claim of fact that is demonstrably false or misleading and likely to impact public safety i just don't see how that meets that standard let alone 
five times meeting that standard. He brought a lawsuit with every claim under the book. It, you know, his First Amendment rights were being violated. This was Section 230 violation. He lost all of those, but the judge said, well, you know, I don't really think Twitter lived up to its own terms of service here. And there was some unique facts because he'd actually gotten to talk to a human being at uh, Twitter who promised him to look hard at this. But still, he ended up getting a settlement. He is back on Twitter. He reposted exactly the same tweet and they did nothing about it. His settlement's confidential, but he says he's actually still free to go investigate the role of the government in suppressing that message. So on the whole, it's the beginning of kind of a wearing away of the immunity, the Teflon that uh, social media has had in applying these policies. It's a modest victory, but it's a victory worth savoring for those on my side who think that Silicon Valley has been very high-handed and especially on COVID stuff. So that's that. One last story that we just can't do justice to, and I'm not sure what justice would be, is Uber has been pwned badly, and a lot of Travis Kalanick's emails and emails from high officials about their strategy around the world has been released. I don't know that there are, you know, there's a lot of little things that are interesting. Probably the most interesting from a legal point of view is that they had a kill switch so that if the Dutch authorities did a dawn raid on their office in the Netherlands, they could cut off all Dutch access to their central cloud and all they could get was what was stored on the local computers. And they use that a lot to defeat investigations or make them less effective. Ironically, they apparently did not keep hackers out or maybe it was insiders from disclosing. This was an insider. This is yeah. Don. This was one of their lobbyists, I think. Uh -huh, okay. Don McCann or something like that. So yeah. it was not a hacker who okay. got the information, which so I think was, is important. Yeah, and it was somebody who was saving his email. And yeah, I have to say there's a little bit of worries about Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in Russia. You'd be crazy not to worry about the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act if you're lobbying in Russia. But it doesn't really sound like criminal behavior. But it, it might give you a sense of why the government is so determined to stick it to Joe Sullivan, who was the CISO and who was close to Kalanick, in the hopes that he will flip on the former CEO and they can actually bring a criminal case against Travis Kalanick as well. That's, to my mind, the only explanation for trying to turn this kind of slippery bug bounty that was paid by Uber into a wire fraud case. Okay, that is it for the week. Thanks to Jane. Thanks to Dimitri for his guest appearance. Thanks to Dave Itell. If you've got comments and suggestions, send them to cyberlawpodcast.steptoe.com, or you can include them in your review, and we'll read them on the air. And I've got one to read from Jen Devil Kitty, a five-star review, not entertainingly abusive, but that's okay. I'll take it. It says, this podcast is the most informative, real, practical discussion of current, as we speak, issues and activities in cybersecurity, privacy, and related topics. Experts in the field who are informative don't withhold, that's for sure, authentic discussions and insights. So thanks to you guys for not withholding, and thanks to Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been Episode 416 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Music